Friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 this afternoon. I don't remember when I first came across the term scale up. Maybe you guys have known it since its first recorded use in the English language back in the 1940s. I haven't known of that term for more than, I don't know, the last 10 years or so. And for me, when I think of scaling up, I think of the tech industry. I think of dudes, you know, who, who dropped out of college because they knew better. In their, in, in their garages, with a brilliant idea, some sort of tech specialist who knows how to make it happen, that then blows up, you know, in like a month's time. And you're still in your mom's garage, and you're not exactly sure what to do with the million users you have now. But you know you've got a product that works, and you know it's, it's got to work bigger than it does now, and you have to scale up. This is, a, I think, one of the main economic stories of our particular time. Businesses coming out of nowhere with markets that are waiting for what they have to offer, but with an idea that maybe outpaces the structures they'll need to spread that idea as far as it could go. The challenge of scaling up is always a challenge of, to hold on to what you do, you know, what made it attractive in the first place, the idea that, that worked, to hold on to that, to prioritize it, to keep its essence in the midst of great change, in the midst of, of, of new pressures that you didn't have before, and with the responsibility to offer it on a larger scale than you ever did before. How to hold on to the essence of who you are when what you need is more institutional or structural support than what you already have. Friends, I think that's the kind of situation behind the story we reach in Acts this afternoon. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus had told his community of followers they were going to be his witnesses. That was the marching orders. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be my witnesses, not just here, but in Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. He was leaving them here to tell the truth about who he is and what he's like, to, to represent his kingdom, his rule on earth all over the world until he returns. And we've been watching that witness start to develop. We've seen it. We've seen it start to come to life. We've seen it develop on two parallel tracks. On the one hand, you've got people actually bearing witness with their words to the things Jesus said and did. So one after another, throughout these early chapters in Acts, we've seen apostles rise and preach. They've talked of Jesus who lived and Jesus who died, Jesus who rose again, Jesus who now reigns on the throne of the universe. And they've offered forgiveness to anybody who would come. And that word is spreading. People are buying in. They know they need what this man offers them. Then on another parallel track, we've seen what happens after people actually start to believe it's really true. When more and more people come to faith, life together looks really different than it did. So there have been several moments already through Acts where, where Luke has zoomed out for a moment and, he's, and he showed us this, this community taking shape, a community where people first hear the word, believe it, and then start to identify with each other. They identify with Jesus. He's now the most important thing about them. And all of a sudden, they're connected to everyone else who thinks Jesus is the most important thing about them. And so they don't consider their stuff to be their own. If you need it and I've got it, it's yours. We've seen this remarkable community take shape. And then it's after these times where the word has gone out, the community has developed around it, that, that, that more and more people, Luke tells us, have been added to their numbers. Now, so many have been added that this mission is starting to get strained. See, there's just one local church in the whole world at this point, and it's this church right here in Jerusalem. 
They've got thousands of members now, but still just 12 apostles. The same number of apostles they had when there was just 120 of them. So the question is, how can they hold on to this quality of life, this clarity of witness that produces a new way to love? How can they hold on to that as they continue to grow beyond their wildest dreams? They're going to need some new structures, that's how. And it takes a challenge to reveal that truth. What we're going to look at this morning in the story before us is a time when this new, happy, holy community recognized the, the power of indwelling sin wasn't completely destroyed yet. That this community wasn't, in fact, perfect. And what we're going to get to see and take some encouragement from is that the glory of God that they're here to display to the world The glory of God is not seen in the absence of conflict and not having anything to fight about. It's seen in how the conflict is handled. It's how they respond when things get strained that tells the truth about who God is and what kind of love he offers to those who trust in him. And watching the apostles do a little bit of problem solving, watching them scale up here in this story is going to help us Recognize something true about the essence of the church's life and how we can help hold on to it in our own church. That's what's in front of us together this afternoon. I want to begin by reading the seven verses that we'll be talking about. I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, and read to verse 7. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk you through this story and what we can learn from it in a few different steps. I want to just simply follow the challenge. Make sure it's clear what it was that was stressing this early community's life together. The response, the solution, if you will, to that challenge. And then the lessons we can learn from it. First, the challenge. There are several pieces to it. This was a complicated situation. We've already talked about the challenge of scaling up in general. Lots and lots of people have become Christians at this point. There is more work to do than the apostles can handle on their own. And one of the things that helps show that's true is a complaint. And that brings us to the first challenge I want to highlight now. I'm going to call it the challenge of self-centeredness. I don't know, maybe it's, a little, maybe it's wrong of me that I take at least a little comfort from the dispute that arises here in these early days. It's so easy to... Uh, to romanticize and idolize these early church communities that we've been looking at so far. I mean, these guys had the apostles. They had living eyewitness testimony 
to the, all the things that we hold to. They had the Spirit sizzling with his presence among them. They had, they had this complete identification with each other that's just beautiful to see and almost unimaginable. There's no question this was the best church they'd ever been part of because it was the only church they'd ever been part of. They had nothing to compare it to, so everybody was relatively happy, at least at first, or at least it's, imagined to, it's easy to imagine them as, as happy. And if you compare this model that we've been seeing so far to, to say, the model of, of like any church anywhere that you've ever been a part of, including ours, for all our health that God has given us, well, it's easy to either get down on the church or down on yourself or maybe a little bit of both. And then here... In Acts chapter 6, you see something that starts to look a lot more familiar to 21st century American churches. Some folks are grumbling. And the best we can tell from this story, they had good reason to. This church isn't actually perfect after all. These Christians aren't all the way sanctified yet. Which is to say their honeymoon days are beginning to fade and the, 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 the reality of sin, self-centeredness, is beginning to surface on both sides of this dispute, best I can tell. On the one side, I think this is the most important emphasis in this text, you've seen that even though folks are giving generously and they're spreading that around to anybody who has a need, apparently one group of widows was being neglected. And we're told that the, the neglect here falls along all too familiar lines. It's the Hellenists who are being neglected by the Hebrews. Now, both of these groups would have been groups of Jewish people. But some of them would have grown up outside the promised land, if you will, outside the area where, where Hebrew or Aramaic would have been spoken, and rather in cities of the Roman Empire where Greek was the main language. So their main language was, was, was Greek. And you know language is powerful. If you can't communicate directly with someone or not easily, it's easy to start to see them as different from you, even other than you, a different kind of person. And usually language isn't the only thing that separates people like this from one another. Who knows what else it was that made them seem different from one another. The power of the gospel has brought them both to Jesus, but they're still who they are. They still speak the languages they speak, and it still comes all too easy to prefer the people who sound like you, even if you don't realize you're doing it. Whether there was any intent on the part of those distributing this food or not, it's just easy to fail to see the needs of people who don't sound like you do. That's one side of the challenge of self-centeredness in this story. Apparently, people were deferring to versions of themselves who had need rather than seeing the needs more broadly. But I think that there's at least the hint of another side to this story, another evidence of, of self-centeredness that was a problem in this early community. Luke describes the response to this unequal distribution using a word that, that mostly, almost always, as far as I can tell, describes a kind of grumbling, not just a flagging of something that's a problem so you can see it, but a, but a, but a, a grumbling that comes from a heart response that isn't holy or healthy. See, it, that, and, and let's be honest, that's not a stretch to imagine either. It, it, if you look for evidence that other people don't value you properly, you are probably going to find evidence that other people don't value you properly. And it's easy to be both overlooked and the victim of that and also sin against God and others in your response to it. It amazes me how quickly my heart can move from gratitude to a kind of entitlement, especially when my standard shifts. 
When my standard shifts from, and I'm comparing what I have, not with what I used to not have, but with other, what other people have now. You know, when, when, when that's my standard of comparison, gratitude shifts to enlightenment, or excuse me, entitlement a lot quicker than I wish it would. I remind myself of Sally in Charlie Brown's Christmas, which we often throw back in our kids' faces. You remember when she's asking Santa for 10s and 20s? And Charlie Brown goes, oh, even my own sister. And she says, I just want what I have coming to me. I just want my fair share. The, 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 the punchline is no longer Santa Claus gives me stuff I didn't pay for, but, but Santa better give me what Santa owes me. There's never been a church in history that wasn't made up of self-centered people like me who are quick to forget the shocking goodness of God, especially when somebody looks us over, as will happen. The challenge this church is facing so far is a challenge of self-centeredness, which is still there. Still there, still a problem for them showing up in this one unique case. But that's not the extent of the challenge. There's also the challenge of their witness. See, part of the testimony that they've been giving to their city so far has come from a remarkable unity. The kind of unity that brings Hellenists and Hebrews together and, and, treats, and causes them to treat their stuff like it's not theirs. Like it's for the taking for anybody who needs it. That does not make sense to the people who are watching. And that's one reason others were coming to faith. People are being added every day, we're told, as they gather, as they preach, and then as they live in this way. Surely, in part, the reason they're adding so many is that God's power is showing up in a remarkable, self-emptying, other-loving unity. But now, that unity is threatened. Once they identified with each other, now that identification's breaking down. And this community is now challenged and potentially, depending on how this goes, could end up looking not unusual or supernatural, but pretty much exactly what you'd expect. There's one more layer to the challenge that they're faced with here. And I'm going to call that the challenge of priority. The apostles gather the church together. Verse 2 tells us about this. All the number of disciples, they're all there. The first thing they say is, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, that comes off to our ears like a little bit snarky, at least a little bit, and maybe condescending, kind of a slap in the face of this kind of work of distributing resources, as if the apostles were above it and couldn't be bothered to dirty their hands with it. And if that's the way you responded to it, I want to tell you why that isn't actually what's going on here. For many reasons, some I'll tell you now, others we'll see you later, that's not what this is. They were not above work like this. In fact, there are good reasons to believe this had been their work up until now. I mean, at the end of chapter 4, when we're told that everybody's sharing their stuff, we're told that they lay it at the apostles' feet. And that, that from there, the money was distributed so that everybody had what they needed. Perhaps they, they're, they're coming to the apostles here now because the apostles are the ones who've been responsible for this. They're the ones who have, who have missed this in the eyes of those who are complaining. And, and whether or not they, they were directly responsible for all the distribution to this point, either way, they were apostles who were sent by Jesus. They were apostles who had their feet washed by him on the night before he died, who were told by his own mouth that they were supposed to follow their master and serve as he did. That he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They're not above this kind of work. That's not what's going on here. Instead, 
they've reached a place where they can't personally get it all done. They can't both do the preaching and the distribution, the table serving, as Luke puts it here. It's just too much for 12 men to do, so something's got to give. In fact, one scholar that I read said their response reads almost like a response to a specific objection. That when they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables, it's not a stretch to imagine them responding to someone who said, you know what you ought to do? You ought to give up preaching the word. That takes a lot of time. And go ahead and serve tables until this is fixed. And then you can go back to preaching the word. Make sure that this is done equitably. This is where you show up as the hands and feet of Jesus. Then you can move back to preparing to preach and to teach. In other words, part of the challenge here is that they could end up creating a different problem by how they chose to solve this problem. We have so much to learn from how they chose to resolve it. I want to take you now to their solution. What they do about this challenge and all its complexity, the different layers we've talked about. Look at how their response addresses all of them. I want to show you the solution. This is going to come in verses 3 to 6. And I want to show you first from the apostles' perspective and then from the congregations. From the apostles' perspective. Look at what they choose to do. Verse 3 and 4. Therefore, brothers, they say, since we can't give up preaching the word. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What strikes me most about these verses is what they don't choose to do among the range of options that were in front of them. They don't deny the problem That's what I'd be tempted to do as a leader. If you've got a full plate already and your life would easily be more simple and straightforward if this weren't a real problem, your knee-jerk reaction, the deep incentive you have at your gut level is for there to be nothing to it, to try to deny it, to, to defend yourself, to try to deflect the charge. But they don't do that. They also don't dismiss the problem. They don't say, yeah, I see where you're coming from. I know that that's happening but it's, it's really not that big of a deal. They don't treat it like something that'll just take care of itself over time or something beneath their pay grade that they can't be bothered with. They take it seriously. And they take it seriously, friends, because it was important to God. Throughout the Old and the New Testaments, this kind of mercy ministry, this care for the vulnerable, is part of how God revealed himself to the world and part of how he shows his glory through his people. We, we, our call to worship this morning came out of, or this afternoon came out of Psalm 146. Verse 9 told us, as we read then, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow. Widows just like these. That's what he's like. In his law, he repeats the same thing. Deuteronomy 10. He executes, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And therefore, because he's like that, he tells his people things like Exodus 22, 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And the prophets sent by God complain when they disobey, when they don't reflect his goodness and his love, as in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. Your princes, Israel, they're rebels. They're companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause doesn't come to them. And James, writing in the New Testament, one of these apostles here handling this on the spot, wrote in his letter that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world. See, the apostles don't dismiss this problem because this is a big problem. It matters to them because it matters to God. And they know that the purpose of their church, the purpose of their life together, is to tell the truth about who God is by the way they love one another. They don't deny the problem. They don't dismiss the problem. But they also don't drop everything and take charge of the problem themselves. They don't do that. That's another easy response as a leader, or all too, all too easy to, to fall into that response. So if it's got to be done, I may as well just go ahead and do it myself, no matter what else has to fall by the wayside, to kind of live in the tyranny of the moment with whatever seems most urgent and just chase that. They could have, and they don't. They delegate it. They call on the church to identify highly qualified men of good reputation. See, he's not demeaning this work. Look at how he describes the people who should be chosen to do the work. They've got to be full of the Spirit. They've got to be full of wisdom. They're going to need it for this hard, important work that they've got in front of them. But it doesn't have to be the apostles. Because this matters, pick somebody of great quality to be on it. But their own calling... Their own responsibility, it's different. They're to prioritize preaching and prayer. That's the apostles' response. They don't dismiss, they don't deny, but they also don't just grab it by the horns. They delegate it instead. Now look at how the congregation responds. Verses five to six. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte. They set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. It's staggering if you think about what this really means. All the Christians, thousands of them, are there. This is a tense moment. The apostles propose a solution, and it pleases all of them. They're all good with it. They're happy about it. Not just accepting it, but, but pleased. What pleased them? This is a congregation who knows that they can't live unless the apostles focus on preaching and teaching. They're pleased with the apostles' decision to focus their time there. They know it's their job to support that work. They're bought into the role of the gospel in their culture, in other words. They don't accuse these apostles of some sort of ivory tower isolation. They don't insist, you got to get your hands dirty. Come down here with us. They don't conclude that the apostles must really not care if this is the way that they're responding. They don't do any of that. It pleases them to know that the apostles are going to focus their attention on prayer and on the ministry of the word. They are bought in. And the other thing that pleases them is the apostles' insistence here that these widows must be cared for, all of them. This is essential work. The congregation gets it. They know they're responsible for it too. And one of the reasons I think we can see them getting it and owning that this is their responsibility, not someone else's, to defer. I think a powerful clue that they get it and buy in is the fact that the men that they choose have mostly Greek names. These men that they choose seem to be men who would have been the most sensitive to those most likely to be overlooked. They're drawing them out of the, the community that was aggrieved here. 
because they want to see something really happen. They want to see the problem actually solved. The congregation is pleased by this solution because they are bought in on the importance of holding together the preaching of the word and these ministries of mercy that tell the truth about who God is. Now, I want to leave you with this. I wanted to give you just a nice textured look at what was going on and at how they chose to resolve it to set up for you a couple of final things to take with you. There are some, some crucial lessons for us as we look at our church and our responsibility to hold on to our essential calling to display the glory of God through what we say about Jesus and how we live in his name. I want to give you three lessons. Lesson number one for us. Ministries of the word, like this one right here that I'm doing, that you guys are, 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 are participating in. Ministries of the word and ministries of mercy are both indispensable to the life of the local church. Both of them. We're called to prioritize them both. Because, friends, it's together, it's this combination through which we tell the truth about who God is and what sort of kingdom his grace and love create. The new heavens and the new earth that we read about earlier, that we sang about earlier, it shows up in our relationships with one another. People can see our love for one another, and they see a world in which the lion walks with the lamb, in which no one will be afraid because no one will ever be harmed. And, and for now, they see it not just in the fact that we meet everyone's needs, but in the fact that we handle conflict like these brothers and sisters did, that we repent and believe in the midst of it. We got to hold up both ministries of the word and ministries of mercy because both of these help us tell the truth. Here's a second lesson. We need to remember that one of these ministries is a cause and the other ministry is an effect. And knowing the difference is crucial to maintaining our purpose as a church, to make sure God gets the glory we want him to get from our life together. Verse 7 is a common refrain in Acts. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. This word continues to go out. It's the word that spreads as a power source. It's the word that creates this quality of life in its wake. Acts 2 made this really clear. Acts 2, at the end of the chapter, we were, we, were, we were given this snapshot of what the community looked like. And the first thing that we're told is that we were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And then a few verses later, what we're told is everybody held their stuff in common. They just gave away as anyone had needs. They didn't consider their stuff to be their own. They were happy to share it. One led to the other. There's a cause and there's an effect. If you forget that, if you aim at what should be an effect and neglect what, what is the only rightful, powerful cause then what you'll end up with is a shell that gives us glory and not God. Sometimes, especially when physical needs are very pressing or when injustice is acute and obvious, talk about Jesus and forgiveness and repentance like, like, the, like the sermons that we've heard from the apostles. Talks on those subjects can sometimes seem like a distraction, like a kind of smokescreen to hide the real issues. And sometimes when things are acute like that, when things are, are, are hot, when things are moving, prayer can seem like inaction. That may always be the impression that, that the world around us will have of what we're doing here. But friends, right here in this room together, we have to know better. We have to know better. Because our goal is to see 
God get glory, not our self-sacrifice, not our resourcefulness, not our savvy or our wisdom or our courage, but God's power bringing change in God's people. Mercy ministry like this, it's indispensable and not optional, but it's the effect of our faithfulness to the gospel and our prayer that God will act by it, not the cause. Here's one last lesson. Every one of us in our church is responsible for the ministries of the word and ministries of mercy. But not everyone will do the same things. We're all responsible for both of these ministries that are indispensable to our life. Ministry of word, ministry of mercy. We're all responsible, but not all of us will do the same things. Friends, there are just more important things to be done than any one member or leader can do. Thanks be to God that he's given us a lot of gifts. That he's given us so many different members who can work together so that the body can be healthy. Read 1 Corinthians 12. They don't have the same function, but they're all part of the same body. They rejoice in each other's work. They work together. They bear each other's burdens. They're part of the same body even as they do different things. Now, our calling is to work and pray to see this diversity of gifts, this diversity of tasks as a good thing and not a bad thing. See, in our flesh, we look at a gap and we say, somebody ought to be filling that. That's a problem right there. Who's not doing what they're supposed to? But in Christ, we see a gap and we see opportunity. Somebody has described those who, who function as deacons in a church. This, is, this text is kind of a prototype for the deacon office. Somebody has described them as, as shock absorbers in the life of a church. Think of the shock absorber as opposed to a sounding board. You know, when drama comes up to a sounding board, it boom, bounces out to everybody. Because there's the kind of thrill that comes from being in the know about something that's going on. But, but these folks, and, I, and, and all of us in our calling not just deacons, but all of us, are more to be shock absorbers. When something real like this is brewing, like we try to minimize it. We try to take that shock out and absorb it so the rest of the body doesn't have to. So that not, not to cover it over, but to seek a resolution that won't create more damage. That's all of our calling in Christ. We work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And as, even as we look to fill the gaps where we see them, we ought to work, also be working to avoid judgments of other people. I say work to avoid judgments because it will take work. It might, it might mean in, in resisting your tendency to reduce what a church cares about to what its leaders spend their time doing or to what programs are offered, organized from the top down or what causes happen to fill the leader's social media feeds. I've seen examples of, of this out there, you know, out, not, not in here amongst us, but out there in the chatter that's going on looking to sort of size up a church in one of these, uh, one or another metrics. Friends, we have to know that. That might happen to us on the outside, but this, this life we share together is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. We know better than that. We know we're all trying to work together to do things that matter, and we won't all do them in the same ways. And so instead of looking to point fingers at others, we should look to rejoice in their work. So you've got a role I'm not doing. And it's thriving. Praise God for that. Not just because I don't have to do it, because I want to see you using your gifts to benefit this body. There's a surface level resonance to this idea that, that you'll know what a church really cares about by what, say, its leaders are spending their time doing. But this, this text just shows the church is bigger and more complicated than that. In here, we ought to rejoice with the fact that some, some of our body 
are able to spend their time preparing to teach others because it's a lot of work. And we know that we need the perspective of this word if we're to go out and do the things God has called us to do. For us to have hope in this hard work we're doing together, we need the feed here. And we're all responsible for these ministries. Friends, what makes it possible for us to treat one another like this, to just rejoice in the work being done and not, not care too much about who has to do it, what makes it possible for us to treat one another like that is when we care more about God's glory than our own. And what matters to us most is that the church's essential functions are not lost as we scale up. We're going to have to divide and conquer, but our lives are still aiming at the same target. We display God's glory to the world by telling the truth through our words and our actions about who he is and what he offers to all who trust in him. And I'm so grateful for the chance to do that work with you guys. Let's pray now that God will give us what we need. Father, thank you for giving us views like this one into the early church and its activities into the wise leadership of the apostles you put here to do just that. We pray that you would help us to learn the lessons we need to. We thank you for giving us such clear perspective. And now we ask you by your spirit to give us the strength, the grace, and the patience to obey you. And we pray that through our life together, you would get glory. That people would hear the word of Jesus and respond to it. That they would see his love reflected and be drawn in by it. And that you would give us all the clarity we need to know what our responsibility is in all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name.